I would say, and I'm not going to name names because I don't want the fanboys and girls to like get all fired up and want to fight me about it because it loses the spirit of the conversation to say, well, that vendor's amazing. I don't want to talk about those specific vendors, but there are vendors. Welcome to 33 Tangents, a weekly podcast featuring a rotating panel of co-hosts that all work together in the same company, but live in different areas of the world. The discussions cover a wide variety of topics from digital analytics to working remotely to current happenings in business and technology. Our regular day-to-day conversations often go off in various directions, and the goal of this podcast is to share our ideas and find new ways to engage with others. Climbing pants are easily cleaned. <laughs> so hungry. <laughs> what you eating? Pear and gorgonzola pizza. Oh, what and gorgonzola? Nice. Pear. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of those days where. Sorry, I'm sorry for the chewing in the microphone here. Um, it's one of those days where. Typically, my um, my calendar looks like a pyramid starting at Monday through Friday, where Friday is usually like really chill and light. Um, I don't know what's going on this week, but it looks like an hourglass. Like yesterday was chill. Monday and Tuesday were crazy. Today, like I've been going since I don't know when, but I have, let's see, one, two, three, four, five hours of Back to 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 back. So it's like, I don't even know when I'm going to get a chance to just chill here for a minute. So I'm doing the unfortunate, which I don't really like to do. And that is eat lunch at my desk. One of my, uh, one of my goals of being more balanced and centered and not being all work all the time. Is my volume good? No, no, you're, you're good. I'm just moving it. Make sure my mic is not blocking my face. Um, my yeah I'm trying to be camera over here um is i I've, I've tried to not eat at my desk which for the most part i'm good at but days like today it's like well i wouldn't be able to eat until after four o'clock so i'm gonna eat at my desk well that's fine then, then we could say you know this is um you know this is gonna be our brown bag then this session yeah bring your bring your own lunch don't yep. spill on your climbing pants like i did we'll be good yeah, this week has been nuts with meetings for, for, for me as well. Actually, the last two weeks, I, I woke up today. I'm like, God, it's Thursday already, and I've got I haven't gotten half the stuff done I wanted to get done this week. It's Thursday already, and I'm I, I need a nap. I'm 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 wiped. Mm-hmm. And didn't Hila last time promise that she was going to be on camera during this next podcast mm-hmm. recording? Uh, this I I didn't even realize this was on a calendar. This is insane. Well, that sounds like I, uh, it's um, a I'm totally issue. not prepared. Mm. Yeah, that's true. No, I, I, made the sh- I made sure to schedule it several days ahead of time this time. I, I know, I know. Before. <laughs> but I, was, I wasn't going to say anything. I was just going to be like, it's fine. Mm. I, know, I know it's a crazy week for everybody. All right. So, um, Jason, are- can we start by Jason talking a little bit about why he has wired headphones connected to this fancy mic. I mean, I said you guys needed to stall so I could eat my pizza, but <laughs> yeah. So I, 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 for one, um, I've been having lots of problems with my AirPods. So um, I bought the setup is hilarious. I bought multiple pairs of wired headphones. So this is my phone. It has a wired directly in. To the whatever that jack is called. So I have what is that. this? Nineteen ninety nine. People have been absolutely raving about my audio quality on calls lately. So I, I, you know, yeah. I mean, I'm going back to the wired, and I haven't put my AirPods in in over two weeks now. I think. So that's the phone, and I have another pair of JBL over the ear headphones that are wireless Bluetooth that I previously used on podcasts, but. Also had challenges with them. 
And uh, I figured, you know what, I'm just gonna wire directly into my mic. I can play with the gain because so I can control the balance, so I can control the level of volume in my ears that are coming through my mic, which is super nice. And um, give people an opportunity to ask what's all these wires and what's going on. So yeah, that's my my setup. It started with Bluetooth going haywire on me and it ended up with me going full wired. And even though I love this new wireless keyboard I have, I, it's it's one like hit, hiccup away from me replacing it too and going full wired keyboard and wired mouse. So there you go. Yeah, it sounds like you've got some kind of interference going on um, there with with not just um, you know anything Wi-Fi related, but it also sounds like just just Bluetooth there. If, if well, I got that, that, that's the first thing I think of if you're telling me your your keyboard's also all jacked up. I know Bluetooth is peer to peer, but still, you muted yourself. Oh, and there's so many devices, right? Well, I was going <laughs> to take a bite of pizza because I thought I had a break there. <laughs> Um, there are so many devices just sitting around me. So I have my phone, I have my mouse, I have my keyboard, I have my AirPods. I don't know. My cars are trying to constantly connect. Mm-hmm. So like there's, you know, there's so many different Bluetooth things. I, I'm like, maybe they're fighting with each other. I don't know. Well, it, it's funny. So, um, you know, you're talking about kind of going old school with the wired stuff. Um, for different reasons, I broke out the old school iPod iPod Nano. Um, I mean, for me, it's just trying to find ways to put the phone down. <clears throat> I've noticed over the last six months with with the COVID lockdowns and everything, I've been glued to my phone much more than normal, just constantly sitting there scrolling and checking updates every 10 minutes or so. So I went back to like the old school iPod so I can try to put my phone somewhere else. So while I'm working, I can still listen to podcasts, listen to music, but uh, this way, I'm not constantly checking the phone, and it's it it like takes effort to go get it. I like that. I don't even know if I would could find an iPod iPod if I wanted. Oh. I'm sure there's probably five around here somewhere buried in that basket or drawer that you throw your old electronics in. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was funny. I, I was I've been cleaning out stuff here in the house, and I, I came across that drawer. And, you know, I have like several old, old iPods. I mean, I still carry, I've been carrying this one with me for, for a long time now, but like all the old ones, like, you know, when they first introduced video on it and like, I mean, back to like what, what I remember when I first got it, like, it was like, oh, this is nice and small it's 60 gigs, tons of music, nice and small. But now like you get it like, wow, this thing's like a weight in your pocket. And I mean, that, that's only 15 years ago. It's a long time in tech. Yeah, it is um so uh so yeah funny enough you, you talk about going old school i've been doing the same thing even my wife was like yeah i noticed you had your ipod out i'm like yes yeah, so i just put my phone down and and not not had not doing like just the what's a, a reflex now of just constantly checking it it's hard to do i mean especially as we're doing more interconnected stuff and more mm-hmm. internet of things like it, it it's become your mobile control center Mm-hmm. Uh, totally. You know? And so it's even if you wanted to get away from it, it's really hard because it's like, well, I need to open the garage door. I need to unlock the door. I need to, you know, mm-hmm. a lot. So anyway, totally. Really, like, I mean, really I, I even need it just for for clients VPN to, to yeah. log into VPN. Like, you know, they've got like the Google Authenticator. Yeah, we have a new client that uses that. And yesterday I, I, I was going to send Hila an email. I'm like, I'm not logging into this because they're forcing me to install a Google Authenticator app on my phone and I just refuse. Mm-hmm. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have it for multiple things already. Yeah. So I'm sure I have it on there somewhere. I'm just I'm yeah. obstinate. And, and the reason that comes to mind is like, you know, talking about trying to break the smartphone addiction. Um, I even debated the other day. I'm like, what if I went back to a, a flip phone? All I needed is to Dude. text and call. If I went back to a flip phone, I'm like, crap, could I even do work? Because I've got two clients that use the Google Authenticator. I'd have to buy an iPod Touch, you know, just purely to use something something like that. So two incidents, I think, shaped my technology uh, arc. I had the most amazing flip phone and I had this sweet Utah State Athletics case on it. And it was, I, I loved that phone. And uh, it got stolen at an Omniture Christmas party in Park City when someone, one of the valets broke into my car and stole all my stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, 
my phone got stolen. And, and and if that phone hadn't got stolen, I may still be using that flip phone today. Mm-hmm. And then and then <laughs> and then I replaced it with a I can't remember, but it was this blue Nokia um, with mm-hmm. a tiny little screen. It was it was a you could text and you can call on it. That's it. I, I loved that phone. And I clearly remember the situation. I don't remember. I don't remember the date, but I remember being in a hotel conference room in Salt Lake City. Um, I think it was Matt Longy. Is that how you say his last name? Longy? Longy? Longy. Longy mm-hmm. was presenting. And I pulled my Nokia little phone out and set it on the table. And Hila uh, audibly laughed at me. And I think the whole room turned around and looked at me. And everyone else had had pulled out their iPhones, early generation iPhones, and set them on the table. So I'm like, okay, I'm gonna pull out my little Nokia and set it on the table. And she she laughed at me, and I think she forced me to buy an iPhone at that time. And that completely changed the arc of everything. I, I would still be on those old little Nokia phones. I, I guarantee it. I'd be that obstinate. There you go. Lovely. Yeah, this pizza's really good. There's something amazing with gorgonzola and pear and arugula. It's a it's a lovely combination, by the way. Okay, so we didn't come here to talk about sweet old Nokia flip phones or my pizza, which I can't enjoy, or whatnot, or he well, not being on camera. No, I, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'll give you a break in a second. I'll go through the introduction, which will give you a chance to... Uh, it's too messy to eat. I'm too self-conscious now. I already spilled on my pants. Uh, don't worry. Just put yourself on mute and you can go ahead and you know eat your lunch. Um, so what I wanted to do is I wanted to have a follow-up to the conversation we had uh, maybe about a month ago at this point. It, it was the episode where we talked about you know Avinash's... Um, article from again talking 15 years you now 15 years ago or so where he was talking about the uh the pr- the proper ratio of technology to people yeah was it the the 10 90 90 10 rule article? yes yeah yep so we're talking about that and as we were wrapping up that conversation he made a statement we we're all like all right this this is totally it's its, it's own episode it's own conversation and you know, to, to, to paraphrase it a, a bit was, <clears throat> you know, we, you know, we were talking about how as a traditional analyst before web analytics, before digital analytics, you would set aside 70 to 80% of your time to clean, wrangle, realign data. Digital analytics, you know, the, the, the major vendors promised that with the solution that they were starting to build, starting to sell. And again, this is again, going back 15 years that it would be solved for more than 15 years, but that would be solved for, and the need to spend so much time prepping the data would be reduced drastically. Um, So as we were talking, we were were talking about how we're we're treating digital analytics like traditional analytics by still forcing the analysts to do a massive amount of prep work. Um, So wanted to follow up on, on that promise by the digital analytics vendors, you know, why is that still the case? Why are we still spending all this time doing prep work when the promise was is the the solutions would would solve for that? Um, and let's go as far as even saying you know have those tools failed or has the the prep work just moved from one area to another? Oh man, we can take this in so many different directions. I know like <laughs> there, there's so much to talk about because again, like it, it just it's funny. You know, we always seem to come back to sales, and I see us spending time on sales here. Uh, uh, the other day, I forget who I was talking with, and we were talking about the TMS vendor sales, right? Because I think that they're along the same lines. They've always driven me nuts with just just pop our code on the site, and you can get all the, the magic data tag. Exactly. Yep. Um, you know, there was one vendor in particular who was famous for doing that. Just pop our, our line of code on, on the site. And you'll be able to get everything you need. But actually, Hila, I think it was actually you and I talking about this, um, talking about page scraping solutions being um, mm-hmm. something as far as, um, you know, a temporary stopgap 
while you actually work with development team to make sure the data is properly uh, surfaced in a data layer or, 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 or the like. Um, but TMS vendors, and I am going way off topic here, but again, to kind of try to set us up a bit, the, the, the point being, you know, like sales has always been a, a part of this. So have the web analytics tools been, been oversold to the point where, you know, you're, you're still doing a lot of prep work with, with data before you're actually able to get into the insights. Uh, go ahead. No, 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 I insist. Um, did you finish your food? No. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, I think the topic came up this week, Jim, with you and I, because, um, I think that a lot of times right now we're we're faced with the realization that not a ton of thought or collaboration, I would say, partnership with the analysts have been put uh, during the time that the implementation was instrumented. And so the data collection is reflective of some things that were done in isolation, many times without support from developers uh, that would surface things into the data layer and make the implementation more sustainable. And so um, I think that now, uh, as analysts, we are looking for the data and realizing that it's either not there or it's um, not exactly what we thought it was. And um, a lot of the times, it's the challenge of how do we how do we revisit uh, as a collaboration uh, with the developers. Uh, with whoever owns the, the MarTech architecture, how do we revisit this together? How do we prioritize this now? Um, because, because what happens now is that because not a lot of um, uh, time was put into the implementation initially, I think that the majority of the analyst time is, like you said, spent uh, wrangling data, realigning it, scrubbing it, hiding some things um, that are not relevant, you know, and doing all this kind of offline work uh, that takes the majority, you know, kind of 80% of the time instead of spending time really deep diving and answering business questions. So um, the burden has been put on the analyst now um to take the weight of whatever wasn't thought through and just work with what we have instead of just kind of uh saying well we don't have it we we just work with it right and so i think that's that's kind of uh the frustration that i um i'm feeling constantly with some of the uh, data that i'm approaching for sure I think, I think it's a great point and, and I'll expand on that and kind of even pull it out a layer and, and say that the problem is that um, analytics implementation historically and still in most organizations current day has been looked at as a linear process. And by that, I mean uh, the business comes up with a website idea, design, they hand it off to development or a development shop they build it then they reach out to analytics and say oh by the way we need analytics deployed on this site so there's already problem number one already way upstream so while while the analysts come very far down the stream and introduce new challenges we already have a massive disconnect by taking a linear approach to analytics implementation and that is Analytics, by and large, is still an afterthought to site deployment and design. And that puts the implementer in a very tough position because they're often put in a position to have to think really creatively about collecting the data that the business is now asking them for. And so oftentimes things like, again, page scraping, other new things are coming up where it's like we have to be creative to get this data. And now that's putting it us, at a, us at a disadvantage. Then as the implementer, we multiply that issue by, by extending the linear fashion of this and not involving the analyst in implementation. We would save ourselves a lot of problems by saying, hey, analyst, come sit with me. Here's my design. Here's my architecture. Yeah, you know, we got kind of screwed over by development. So we're going to make some creative, you know, solutions to get you your data. 
These are the assumptions we made. Are you okay with it? Is this how you want to see the data? We don't do that. We don't talk to the analyst. We do the implementation based on what the business is telling us they need to measure. We don't ask the analyst to help to help in that process. And then we hand it off to the analyst. We say, okay, dev did their job. They built the site. We did our job. We tagged, we tagged the analytics based on what the business requirements were. Here, analyst, you go now use the data. And now the analyst is at the most extreme disadvantage because they have this compounded problem that started with the development team not involving analytics. It was compounded by the analytics team taking that problem and not involving the analyst and making it worse. And now they have this mess of data to say, I have to now spend 70 to 80% of my time wrangling this data to get it to where I need it to be. So I think the blame is less on the vendors, less on sales, although I will take every chance to take sales out to the woodshed. Is that the right saying? I will. I would take every chance yep. to like kick sales ass for like being lame and lazy. But in, in this instance, I think the bulk of the blame falls internally in organizations. It starts with implementation development not involving implementation. It's further drawn out by implementation not involving analysts. And then we stick the analyst with the bill and say, good luck. And then organizations are wondering, wait a minute, we spent all this money on these solutions. Why are our analysts taking so long to get to the data? Well, you screwed up the process from the beginning and you, you've made their job way harder than it needs to be. I guess that wraps up the podcast for today. <laughs> yeah, you do this to me all the time. You, you, you get right to it and you kill like right. three That's... of my follow-up questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I, I don't want to make this like we, we always we do definitely come back to to, to sales on the, the this a lot because I, I think they definitely over oversimplified i mean i've run into that so many times um where i'm, I'm coming in immediately post-sale and the minute I start to do discovery and start to say scoping things out like proper data exposure, whether that's in some form of a data layer or some form of custom events with the metadata, you know, stuffed in there, I, I immediately then I have to turn around and I'm being forced to, to justify that work needed because someone goes, well, we, we were told we just needed a, a simple block of code. And then you're kind of put into into this corner to to try to make things work. And the the problem is is sometimes like you you also get stuck with saying, okay, well, we'll put a temporary workaround in place. Nine times out of ten, whatever you're saying is a temporary workaround quickly becomes the standard rule. Yeah. So the the there are a couple things that that you bring up um, that I think are are worth talking about. So if, if we do look at if we do look at the vendor, the vendors, um, and what their role plays in this, and on either what's being sold, as you mentioned, from the sales side, and promises kind of be to be kept. I think that actually the bigger challenge is that a lot of these vendors, in order to satisfy their clients, basically did everything the clients asked for, and I think they forgot that they were the experts, not the clients. And so what it ended up happening is, in the beginning of web analytics, maybe you take a very simplified framework. And now you've made it extremely complex. I mean, just go ask anyone that is new to analytics or has vanilla GA on their site and say, go deploy Adobe Analytics. It will make their head explode. There is so much to it. There's so much nuance to it because over the last 15 years, every edge client case has been potentially baked into the product because some big client with a big contract was screaming that they needed this one edge case. And now we have like 800 variable slots and all these unique ways to capture it and these weird merchandising rules and gluing this to that. And it's, it's really, really complicated. So I think, yeah, I mean, from a, from a vendor perspective, I think they own some of it in probably saying yes more than they should have. And should have been a bit more prescriptive in what businesses really need and not just what they're asking for. Um, and and to, to kind of balance that out, I think the enterprise players in the space right now, Adobe, Google, Google, Salesforce, I think they've actually been doing a much better job, honestly, of positioning the work and, and how, how difficult it is to deploy these solutions. I would say, and I'm not going to name names because I don't want the fanboys and girls to like 
get all fired up and want to fight me about it because it loses the spirit of the conversation to say, well, that vendor's amazing. I don't want to talk about those specific vendors, but there are vendors that are in the gap. that are in this like space of trying to figure out who they are um, that are out there still and very fervently selling the magic tag. Why are you like doing all these configuration and couch? You just you just put our library and it cla- captures everything. Every click, scroll, every little thing it captures. You don't even have to do anything. It's a hundred percent a lie, but they're out there really pushing it and selling it. And so I don't think the again I don't think the enterprise vendors are guilty of that. I think they've been much better stewards and leaders of what it really takes to run a quality program. I think it's a lot of the the newcomers that are trying to take um, a little bit of flesh out of those leaders and they're doing it by what the leaders did to start to get to where they were. That's lying to the marketplace saying, this is super easy. You just drop our one line of code on there and everything is collected and analyzed for you. It's a complete lie. It's, it's not. I think that I know you guys reference vendors a lot, but I have seen it just as much client side within, you know, the organization where, and I think it's a different kind of motivation that drives this, but I think on the, uh, on the client side, director of analytics, VP of analytics, you know, they want to see the outcomes quickly. And so they get pulled into this approach that you can, you can kind of brute force your, your data collection strategy um, and get it up and running quickly. Uh, and sure, it's you do get faster time to market, but it's unsustainable. And Jason, you talk about this a lot that the implementation starts to deteriorate instantly. Like as soon as it's live, you know, things get deployed, uh, new nuances in the experiences, the online, the digital experiences, and I think they start to de- deteriorate. So I think. Um, to to the first point, you know, that it's not just vendor. I would actually put the responsibility more on kind of whoever's involved in the team that executes, you know, and and decides to go with this approach uh, as opposed to a more kind of thought out, deliberate data strategy for, for, to begin with. You're still muted. You can mime it. You can mime what you're saying. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I'm just going to forgo my pizza. But then after this, I have to jump on with one of uh, some guy I know in the Holy Land and then other stuff. So I, I don't know. I'm not going to eat my pizza until four. That's all there is to it. Um, you bring up a really good point and it's a, it's a very sore spot with me, especially in sales. Um, because I hear it. Yeah. I hear it all the time. Um, I hear it all the time of, well, we're, we're building out a new website. We need someone to come in and, and stand up our implementation platform. I'm like, well, this is a really complicated website. There's a lot of nuance to it. Um, there's a lot to understand how it's going to work and to properly do this. You need to be thinking about four to six months to do a proper implementation. And it's not, we're going to flip the switch on six months from now and it's going to be done. You know, we'll do this in a, in a fashion where we have milestones along the way, but you have to be prepared to invest six months to do this. Right? What? My idiot nephew who just graduated from Jeffrey Arnold high school can do this in like eight days. Well, what are you talking about? And it's really frustrating to have those conversations because the minute you start asking questions about, well, let's talk about this one user flow on your site. And let's talk about how that can branch out into 12 different experiences. How are you going to capture that to make sure you really understand the consumer behavior on your site? Oh, I didn't, yeah, I didn't even think to ask that question. I'm like, I know. And that's why you think that your idiot nephew can do this in eight days because you didn't stop to think about all these different nuances about your site and how complicated your site visitors are and the data that is so uh, fluid and how it changes. You have to think about all of that. Otherwise, you're just measuring garbage. So yeah, if you want to just measure garbage and make decisions off of that, we can do it in less than eight days. But if you truly want to have an implementation that's going to provide you the data to truly understand your customers, it's going to take time. And not only that, that time is going to pay off continually in the future in that 
We're now going to maintain that and mature it. But sure, let's do the eight-day implementation and then come back to me in two months when in two months it's already broken and doesn't work. And then we can talk again about why it takes the proper amount of time to have these implementations done. I, I think that from a client mm -hmm. side, um, from a company side, is is the biggest driver. Um, but there's also one, and I've, I've taken implementers to task on this um, in some speaking engagements that I've done, is that I think far too many analytics implementers are addicted to implementation. That, that's a very fair point. I, I know I personally get, um, I get stuck in that trap from time to time. Yeah. When you start thinking of all these cool use cases, well, I could do it this way, I could do it that way, and get really, really tricky with it. And no, you're absolutely right. And that is actually something over the last couple of years I've really been trying to work on refining and keeping it as, as simple as possible. Yeah. Because you have a couple different things when you over-engineer it. Um, and I mean, I, I think a lot of this comes from like there was a client 10 years ago I was working with, and they wanted to track just about everything. And the company I was working with at the time, like this client was the 800 pound gorilla and they, they definitely tossed their weight around and they, 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 they definitely got what they wanted. Um, so like we would definitely fall into the trap of over-engineering it. But the, one of the first problems that actually comes up is, well, who's going to maintain it? What happens when, when that over complexity of, for a lot of the stuff it, uh, they end up not using it. Yeah. Um, I mean, how many times have we run into a situation where a client's yelling and screaming, we need this, we need this, we need this. You spend the time designing it, putting it together. You eventually get into something where they're rushing you to put, push it out. You push it out six weeks later and they're not even using it. They, yeah. they, 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 they don't even care and they've forgotten about it, but then that's still there. Yeah. It, it's still there. You still have to maintain it. The woke folks in the industry call that technical debt, I think. Yes. I, th th that thought came to mind, but, uh, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, part of it is over-engineering, over-complicating things that can be made more more simple because I, I, I always think back to that um, meme that went around probably 15 years ago of the bicycle, and, the, and it's a designer meme of, like, this is what the client asked for, this is what we mm -hmm. thought they asked for, this is what, you know, and it's like, they asked for a simple pedal bike, and you built this, like, rocket ship, and it's like, this isn't what they wanted, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think oftentimes in implementation, we do that because it is so fun. Like, we're natural builders. We love to build and tinker mm -hmm. and hack at code. And then we get we lose sight of the fact that they asked for a bicycle and we built them something completely different and opposite of a bicycle. And, yeah. and I think I think that is that is a huge problem. Um, additionally, and compounding on that is the overcomplication we build into implementation is done so in such a way that there's no design. And not only is there no design, there's no documentation, there's no history people leave organizations, someone comes in and is like, I can't even make heads or tails of this. No one slowed down long enough to, even to put together like a one page sheet that says this is what it's doing. So what do we do? Well, rip it down to the studs and rebuild it. Mm -hmm. um, and that happens a lot. And then also what happens a lot is there's a lot of job hopping by people that are addicted to implementation where companies aren't. They're burnt out on implementation. So they bring someone in with the promise of having a rock solid implementation to get them what they need. They get there. The person wants to re-implement the company's like, no, enough is enough. Or they like, maybe they get to a point where they're uncomfortable because what do I do now that the implementation's done? So they go to a new job and at the new job, what do they say? Well, this implementation sucks. I can't make sense of it. I need to rip it down and do it in my own image. So we re-implement mm -hmm. again. And it's just this like constant cycle. Um, as as implementers, not only do we need to be great at implementation, but we need to be great at maintenance. Maintenance is actually the bulk of what we should be doing at this stage of, of the game, right? Like we're so far into this. Uh, I think I might need a sign for my laptop. Um, mm -hmm. we're, we're so my, yeah. By the way, the Apple support via, via mail was phenomenal. I swear, when I, I just called you the other day, Hugh, all right, when I was dropping Yeah, wasn't my, it yesterday you were dropping yeah. it off in the evening? <laughs> yeah, I just dropped it off at a no. FedEx place, and now it's 
supposedly we'll wait to see on if it's fixed but the bad battery is bulging on my macbook pro oh just, that's not good i just barely dropped it off at the fedex drop off and i got a text this morning saying uh you need to be home because we need signature when we drop it back off it's fixed i'm like what that's well, <laughs> crazy uh i completely lost my train of thought well, why don't you go sign for the laptop? Um, no, it was someone else. It was, I think it was oh, okay. someone else doing Well, so, so what I was, you know, what I was thinking of, you know, to maybe you know, help get you back on track. You were talking about the constant reimplementation, the constant reimplementation, and I mean, there's there's so many different reasons for it, but I think the reason why we never get to the maintenance phase is because implementation is cheap movement. To kind of go back to what we were talking about the the executive that. Um, you know, once something built in eight days, there's also the need for showing that executive afterward that stuff's being done. Well, what, what's easier to do? Oh, we wired up these two new things this sprint. We deployed this new tracking code this sprint. Does it actually deliver value? We don't, we don't know, but we, we, we got this done. I can show you that we're using the tool by implementing and because maintaining and actually using the data is the harder part. Being able to show, like, is the site performing the way we want it to? Are these new features that the company has spent a lot of money on actually worth it? People don't always want to hear that information. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, you're you're right. You're right. And it is, it is a seductive and addictive cycle that rarely makes winners out of anybody. Mm -hmm. um, and it's no wonder to me that now we're late into 2020 and we're we're seeing companies, whether it's COVID related or not, we're seeing companies completely ditch their investment in digital analytics. We're seeing them question the value of this. I'm like, this is nothing new. We've been saying this for 10 years now that we, we need to change this. We need to change this approach because it's not giving businesses the value that is promised. And this isn't on the vendors. This isn't, on, this is fantastic software that we have our fingers on. Like, mm -hmm. You know, this is really great stuff that we can do a lot of amazing things with. If we're not getting the value out of us, going back to you queuing this up about what's the right mix of people to, to software, it's on us. Like, sure, we may need more people, but we also should be thinking about getting the right people and, and doing it the right way. Um, and I think that part of that is missed in the kind of 90-10 rule. And I don't think it was Avinash's approach to like say, well, you need, you know, the spend needs to be 90% people, 10% tools and, and have that in a vacuum. But I think what's lost in there is the nuance on the right people and the right process needs to go along with that as well. Um, because, you know, just throwing money at people is the same as just throwing money at, at software. If it's the, not the right fit, the right skill set, the right things you need for your organization, that isn't going to work either. And, and I think as businesses, especially in the digital space, there are so many that are clueless about, they, they know the outputs they want. They have no idea the inputs that what's the, the episode of Seinfeld when, uh, George and Jerry are talking about taking the car to the mechanic and uh, and and George is like they can say whatever you want they want we have no idea how those things work oh you need a new Johnson rod yeah hell let's get one of those like you know that's how most businesses are when it comes to analytics they know they want a car and they want to drive the car but they take it to the mechanic and they're talking a foreign language and they're clueless and I think that that puts them at a very very major disadvantage it puts them at a place to be taken advantage of for one by kind of charlatans in our industry that are selling them something that they completely don't understand and don't need. Um, but it also puts them at a disadvantage to really know how to hire the right people for, for that. And it may not be people that are necessarily trying to take advantage of, of them, but knowing the right people to hire to drive the program that they have the vision for. Um, so it's, it's tough, you know, and it's the same way again with many of us with cars or other things that we don't understand the nuances of, but we know we want the output of it. It, we can be very easily kind of taken advantage of in, in those, those senses. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's challenging. And then again, for us, I think as an industry, we need to hold ourselves accountable as well. I think, I think we have done far less than what we, we could have done as an industry as a whole. Um, we've, we've kind of rested on our laurels. I guess the saying is way too much and patted ourselves on the back way too much. And we're not that great. We're good. But we have a long ways to go to be great. Let's talk about the cost a little bit of of um, of 
kind of the this brute force approach to analytics because it is um, very appealing to have less upfront dev investment and having a kind of a lower level of effort in terms of the implementation and maybe getting faster to market, faster time to market and so on. Um, but the cost is so great. Um, one of the, the biggest costs is we, you guys mentioned is the technical debt. Uh, that we're just kind of feel like we're patching things constantly and we're never going back to fix it. So it kind of compounds on itself. And then you have no clue if the data is really telling you what you, you know, what people are doing on the site and how they're interacting with your, with your uh, platform, with your ecosystem. Um, but for me, and I, I kind of said it earlier is that um the huge data prep that has to happen every single time you want to use the data coming out, out of these ecosystems is, is so great. And you, to be honest, you need a very, a, a much more experienced analyst because of that, because you need an analyst that's going to ask the questions if the data means what they think it means and uh, will check that it's actually valid um, to tell the story as opposed to maybe um, a, a more junior analyst or someone, you know, very motivated, but not realizing that they're trusting the data, they're assuming that this is the story, and then they're giving misinterpreted data to, to executives. And that's kind of where, where it ends up. It ends up at the desk of, you know, uh, people who are actually trying to make decisions uh, but the data is being brought to the past by maybe folks that are making too many assumptions about the data. So, you know, I, I think without really knowing, without really thinking about the composition of, of the team, I think that uh, the most important thing is that, you know, it, there's a cost associated with technical debt where you would have to essentially, I mean, potentially hire people again to re-implement or fix the issues that you had uh, lined up um, and then the investment in more experienced analysts or in rehiring analysts because they get frustrated and end up leaving because they just can't do what they, you know, uh, want to do with the data. So uh, I think there's a huge cost associated there um, with all of it. And yeah. it's, it kind of permeates through the entire organization. So misinterpreted data leads to less trust in the data. And then questions start arising. Oh, should we implement something else? Should we, you know, should we uh, hire some other outside vendor to reinterpret the data? And it's, it's a vicious cycle uh, that could be solved much easier uh, by just saying, hey, we're going to create a collaboration between the analytics leads that know the business questions and the someone that can actually go manifest and 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 build the architecture to collect it in that way so yeah no it's mm -hmm. it's such a great point and you're you're spot on um it, and it's such a complicated equation because you're right it touches so many things i mean the maintenance costs skyrocket um bringing in analysts to do more work and i want to touch on that uh, here in a minute, um, you, you mentioned like vendor swapping and re-implementation. I think all of those are oftentimes outcome of not doing it right up front, um, not fixing this kind of the headwaters is that it flows downhill. It becomes more expensive, more complicated. Man, I, if we could do a study on the cost of lack of trust in data in organizations, I think people's heads would explode. It would be a massive number that organizations are losing um, from lack of trust in data that can be something that can be easily, not easily, but more readily addressed early on in the process, and it's not. And to your point, Hilad, we've seen it firsthand, companies that have spent millions of dollars on an implementation, there's nothing wrong with the software, someone comes in and says, this sucks, we don't trust the data, we're going to rip this out and spend millions more to stand up something new, and that's going to fix our problem. No, it isn't. Until you fix your culture and your processes and your people, you're just going to continue to replicate that with with the new vendor. Um, so it's something that really needs to be taken into consideration. But to take that complexity and just 
oversimplify it, just looking from an analyst standpoint, we're, we're forcing work on an analyst that is better paid for somewhere else. So I'm glad to use the term, bring it to the past. Think about um, us asking Chef Ramsay to peel carrots. It's like, really, we want to ask him to peel carrots? He's a highly paid executive chef. Why are we asking him to peel carrots? This is not a good use of his time. But that's what we're asking of our analysts. And we're asking them to do things that is are not a good use of their time, especially given the software that we've invested in. Yet, because of our decisioning, we're asking them to do that. And it's in that scenario, it's like we're asking Chef Ramsay to go peel carrots. Like, that's that's stupid. We, we need to stop stop doing that for sure because that is that is a major major a cost issue um the second issue you know talking about people and the right people is making sure we are investing though in the right analysts and oftentimes to your point he i i don't i don't think organizations are are willing to do that in fact i tweeted about it the other day and i said the next time someone comes to me and says why why is it so expensive to hire an analyst i want to show them covid twitter because it perfectly illustrates why you spend money on a good analyst. Just go like search COVID um, on Twitter and see every armchair analyst out there saying that they've come up with a plan for your company, your organization, your city, your school <laughs> to manage COVID because of these like five data points that they've found somewhere. I'm like, if you want to hire a cheap analyst, this is what you're going to get and they're going to probably kill your business. So that's why analysts are expensive because they're not like these guys, right? Like doing real analysis and 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 doing it in a way like I mean it's it's kind of a crazy comparison because if these were real analysts we were putting in charge of things they'd be literally killing people. Maybe we're just killing an organization which also sucks, but being an analyst is hard and doing it the right way is hard. So yeah, I mean we can continue to um, inflate this problem of implementation debt and technical debt by hiring poor analysts or by hiring cheap analysts, that's just going to make the problem worse. Because now you've taken even more complicated, dirty data and you're asking someone that is clueless to clean it up and make decisions. It happens. We've seen it happen and it is scary because what is happening is they are absolutely making decisions. They are 100% sold on the conclusions they're coming to. They're presenting them to the business and the business, okay. We're like, what are you doing? We, we, we had a client a couple years ago that he came to me and said, this analyst over there is like not only like giving them bad data, they're literally giving them information that's the opposite of what's really happening in their business. Like they are screwing them over. We should say something. <laughs> it happens way more than I think we're willing to admit. Cool. So, so I guess l let's start to, to to wrap it up a bit. Um, I know we're actually quite short on time. Um, so, kind of to, to to wrap things up, to go back to to my original question, you know, we were talking about you know the promise of the the web analytics and now digital analytics companies of uh, uh, trying to you're working to eliminate the need for prep as part of the solution. But listening to you both. It sounds like it's not necessarily that the tools don't do that. It's poor implementation methodologies. It's rushed implementation methodologies and then poor maintenance. It, it's just the keeping the implementation in the implementation phase that leads to this need to constantly prep the data, prepare the data instead of using the, the tool for what it's, what, it, what it's supposed to do. Did, did I understand you correctly? You did. And I think it's made even worse by hiring inexperienced analysts. So as I mentioned, all of those things that you described, Jim, absolutely are a massive problem. And it's putting the onus on the analyst to clean it up. Oh, there's two big packages. <laughs> Is that your laptop? No, the laptop. I, no, they're two big packages. So, okay. <laughs> the the, the five-year-old is really into the uh, package delivery that's well, funny and i made a major major mistake i didn't i under underappreciated his ability he like these kids these days are so technically savvy um and we bought a uh plane kit a lego plane off of amazon he now knows how to purchase on amazon 
Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so I created a bit of a problem there. So he, he gets packages every now and then. And so he's super excited when there's a, there's oh, a delivery. But so back to what I was saying is we take all of these problems, Jim, that you detailed out and we make them even worse by handing them to an unprepared, untrained analyst. So in the best scenario, we're handing all this mess to a really good analyst and saying, I know this isn't a good use of your time, but make make this work. And they do. In the worst case scenarios, which again, I think is happening more often than we'd like to admit, this this mess that we've created upstream in implementation and development is made worse by handing it off to a completely unprepared, inexperienced analyst who then believes they actually know what they're doing and are presenting faulty findings to businesses that talk about the cost. I, I, I absolutely believe that businesses are making decision on that faulty data that is resulting in the loss of millions and millions of dollars in mm -hmm. revenue for them. Um, Hill, I'll give you a second to, you know, for any uh, last thoughts that you have, I'm going to make a note of this. I, I just came up with the next follow-up conversation. I want to talk about the analysts. Um, and, and to your point of my, my question is, is, and I know this is going to take us off. We'll come back to it is why are junior level or inexperienced level analysts getting in that position where, they there's not someone senior overlooking them so we're going to come back to that i want that as a follow-up episode so yeah, i just wanted to point that out but Hila, i know you've I got like that uh, topic yeah let's talk about that so but i know you both have to run we're, we're running short on time today so uh any any last minute thoughts from you uh no this was a, a good discussion um i think that uh like i said you know from my perspective is not uh totally to put blame on any vendors at all. I think it's, you know, it's the strategy that is chosen and how much, you know, uh, upfronted investment uh, a company is willing to put that's going to dictate what their team is going to look like and what their strategy is going to look like. So um, I think that's, that's kind of where, where it all spawns from. Good stuff. Yeah, yeah, totally awesome stuff. So, well, thank you both um, for for joining today. This has been a fun conversation. I'm going to get that follow-up conversation on the calendar because I think that'll be awesome to, to chat about as well. Give Hila two, week, two weeks lead time so she shows up on video. Her, her fans are asking for it. <laughs> <laughs> Where are the fans? There's a couple fans. We have a few. Yeah. So cool. Well, thank you both. All right. Um, I will chat with you later and we'll, we'll chat with everybody else later as well. See ya. Bye guys. See ya. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of 33 Tangents. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast aggregator so others can find us. If you would like to reach us, you can do so by emailing podcast at 33sticks.com or on the web at 33tangents.33sticks.com. 33 Tangents is a production of 33 Sticks, an analytics boutique.